0: you were with us last Sunday, and, and if you weren't, it's okay. Uh, last Sunday, I tried to share a very what I th- think would be a very foundational uh, message. And by the way, Bill, for, could I be able to see it on the back uh, TV there for whatever reason? I can't uh, see the screen. Um, last Sunday, our focus was on the importance of not simply reading our Bible, which is very important, But reading our Bible with an understanding or desire to understand that our Bibles are all about Jesus. And we spent some time in Luke chapter 24 on uh, Sunday looking at how Jesus met with two followers. And then he met with 11 of his disciples. And each time that he was with them, he he tried to explain to them that open up those Old Testament passages because those scriptures all point to me. Here's the thing, those, those followers of Jesus, those disciples of Jesus were people who knew, who memorized, who heard the Bible regularly, but they lacked the understanding of the Bible. They knew it, they memorized it, they heard it regularly, but they lacked an understanding of it. And I think that should then pose a challenge to us because there's nobody in this room whose Bible knowledge would match those of the 11 disciples. And yet they failed to understand that the scriptures were all pointing to to Jesus. And what makes it even more difficult for us today is that we're not familiar with many of the cultural aspects that are that we find in the in the Hebrew scriptures. You see this Bible was written and I said this last week but it was written by Jewish authors to Jewish people who lived in a Jewish culture. And because of that it doesn't mean it's not applicable to us, but we have to We have to enter into a Jewish world in some ways to fully understand what is being said to us rather than just approach it like a 21st century American. Well, this is what the English words say, so this is what it must mean. That's not what our scriptures are given to us for. They are for us to understand who wrote it, who it was written to, and what the purpose in that writing was. See, understanding the culture is very important to understanding what's being communicated. If we, if we lack the cultural understanding, we may lack the full understanding. Um, so I, I am currently uh, pursuing my Master's of Divinity degree I took this semester off because of all the things that were take, you know, happening in our lives right now, but I'll plan to pick that up next semester and hopefully graduate next May with my Master's of Divinity. And one of the classes that I most recently took is called Intercultural Communication. Doesn't that sound boring? <laughs> it's it's basically a class that is trying to help, help you understand the importance of knowing a culture in order to communicate rightly. And one of the really important... Examples that I remember so much from reading in the textbook was an American company had invited a Chinese company to come to America so that they could talk about a multi-million, billion-dollar partnership. And the week of uh, negotiations went very well, and it all ended up on a, uh, the last evening at a very formal restaurant to kind of celebrate all that was going to take place. But that's when everything went south. Because when the Chinese delegation showed up, a junior executive of the American company was there to greet them and usher them into the, the room. And, and then when the Chinese leader said, where do I sit? The, uh, the junior executive said, well, you can sit anywhere you'd like to. The next day, the Chinese delegation left without signing the partnership and it was only through time that it was uncovered that when the junior executive of the american team greeted the head leader of the chinese company the entire team was offended that the head of the american company wasn't there to greet the head of their company and when the the junior executive said you could sit anywhere you want to that that insulted the entire team because they believed that their leader should be seated at the head of the table right directly next to the leader of the American team. See, in in the Chinese culture, hierarchy is so important that everybody wants their leader to be lifted and exalted. So the whole team was insulted when the Americans treated them that way. While in American culture, in the Western culture, equality is what everybody seems to strive for. We'll treat everyone the same no matter your title. But those two cultures did not understand one another, and so although they, they shared the same experience and the same, same space, they left with different conclusions. So as we read the Bible, you've ever been in a Bible study where someone said, well, this is what it says to me, well, this is what it says to me, well, this is what it says to me, and I'm going to tell you something, the Bible was written to say one thing. It wasn't meant to say something to each of us differently. Now we can take and apply it to our lives differently because some of us are in different ages. Some of us are in different walks of life, spiritually mature, spiritually immature. Children out of the home, very young children. We can take the principles of the scripture and apply them to our lives differently. But the scripture was meant to say one thing and one thing only. And that's what the Holy Spirit desired to say through his word. So we have to, as we enter the, the word of God, we have got to care about the cultural context of the scriptures because we're going we're to read a passage today in Exodus chapter number 19 that my guess is 100% of the people in this room, myself included, really would struggle to understand that what this would have meant to the people who originally Read this because what I'm going to tell you is that we're going to read about a wedding, but it won't say anything about a bride and groom, but it would make complete sense to everyone who read it. We're starting in Exodus 19 today. Um, because I told you last week the Lord has led me to, to begin a journey with this church through the book of Deuteronomy. And I believe there's two reasons why. I believe the Lord placed Deuteronomy on my heart, because Deuteronomy was given when a group of God's people stood at a precipice of some great, incredible act that God had prepared for them, this promised land. And I believe that as a church, we, we really are standing like at a precipice, to be ready to be able to take a big step into a Place into a into something God has promised that is going to be great and it's going to be awesome. And so let's remind ourselves what this very wise leader named Moses said to a group of people as they were ready to get embark on a new journey. But secondly, Deuteronomy was written to a new generation about the same law. Many many in here, your second or third generation Christians. And there's many second and third generation Christians who are doing what is called deconstructing their faith. I don't want anything to do with the faith of my fathers. I'm going to find my own way. And I don't think that's what the way it needs to be. I think we take the faith that has been handed to us, the word that has been handed to us, and we say, how do we apply this to our lives in the 21st century? The Bible doesn't change, but the applications change. Can. And so that's what I really, really hope that we're able to look through in Deuteronomy. But the word Deuteronomy, the, the, or the, the book Deuteronomy, simply means the second giving of the law. He's gonna, Moses is going to give the law the second time. So before we get to the second time, I wanted to take just a little bit, maybe a few weeks, and we'll talk about the first time. So That's why we're starting in Exodus 19, because I think we need to know the why, not just the, the what. Okay? So I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to take about 10 minutes. And I'm going to give you a little backstory or a little little history into the Jewish culture of weddings. And then we're going to read Exodus 19. And we're going to see if we can pick up some of that really cool stuff that's there. So most Jewish weddings were arranged marriages. Now, when we think of arranged marriages, we have this this terrible thought process of somebody in one country having to marry somebody in another country, never having met and being forced to live together. That's typically not what would have happened. The families would have known one another and they would have picked out a girl for their boy or a boy for their girl to say these qualities in this family are going to match well with what our children need. And so these marriages, the kids didn't necessarily have a choice in them, but the moms and dads weren't doing it just because they felt like I have power. They were saying, what would be the best choice for my 14-year-old son, who isn't wise enough to make this decision on his own, to marry a young lady? And so these arranged marriages would, would often take place by families who knew one another. When the time came to propose, the father and the son would travel together, uh, sometimes short distances, sometimes long distances, and when they would arrive at the home of the bride, the father would take a cup out of the bag that they used to travel, and he would hand the cup to his son, and then he would take wine, and he would pour wine into that cup. The boy, the young man, would then present that cup of wine to his bride-to-be and say, This cup is a new covenant that I would like to make with you. And if you drink it, I won't drink it again from this cup until we are together in my father's house. Now, there might be some of you saying, wait a second, that sounds sounds a little familiar. Where have I heard that before? But if you read the Gospel of Luke... When Jesus has gathered his disciples together for the last supper, he he raises a glass of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant or the new testament that I am making with you. Which means Jesus was making a wedding covenant with his disciples and you say, how? Because what is the church called? The bride of Christ. And Jesus would go on to say in Luke, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my father's kingdom. Wedding talk. The groom would hand that cup of wine to the the young lady and if she drank it, it would mean I accept your proposal. Now, This is very important for us today because when we pass the bread and the cup for the Lord's Supper, you have to understand most evangelicals think when they drink that cup of juice, I am remembering the death and the burial and the resurrection of my Savior. It's far more than that. You're actually holding the cup that Jesus said, this is a new covenant that I want to make with you. And each time you drink that cup of the, of the, from the Lord's Supper, you are declaring, I will be your bride. You will be my husband. I will live for your glory. This is not just some simple thing. Yep, Jesus died for me. Pass it on. What's next? This is a very sacred moment where I say, my groom is making a covenant with me. Will I live for his glory? Will I be his bride? The groom and the father return back to the house and the son would begin building an extra room on his father's home. I had the privilege last March to go to Israel. It was amazing. We stood in the city of Capernaum, and we saw exactly what it would look like for a home to have extra rooms added to it by where the son would live for one year. The son, the the dad would would look at, um, the dad would tell his son to, to build a room, and where he and his bride will live. And man, that immediately should point us to Jesus in John chapter 14 when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. (laughs) That's wedding talk. Can you believe that? Like we just think, oh, Jesus is going to come back again. No, he's leaving his promise as the groom who said, this is the new covenant. He's also saying, I'm going to get that room ready and I will come again to get you. That's so cool. But the bride has no idea when that groom's gonna come back. And that groom actually has no idea when his dad is going to say, okay. Because this is the last time that the father is going to be able to invest in his son before he embarks on a journey that is all his own. And so that son, that, that father, he may work together with his son preparing the room. He may make the son do the, the work all completely on his own. He knows what's best for his son. And he has no idea. And the son has no idea when the dad's going to come in and say, okay, it looks good. The dad could come in and say, redo this. Hey, start over again. Hey, you can't prepare a room like this for your bride. Only the Father knows. Which is why in Mark 13, Jesus said, I don't even know the day of my return. Only the Father knows. Now, we have, again, we have somehow in our evangelical world, we have somehow looked at the world around us, and here's how we are getting ready for Jesus's return. It's so dark out there. The world's getting so bad. Oh, it's so sinful out there. It must mean Jesus is coming back soon. Oh, my government official that I like, he wasn't elected. Our country is going to go to pot. Jesus must be coming back soon. And somehow we have connected the darkness of the world around us to the return of our king. That's not at all what scripture wants to tell us. It's not about how dark the world around us is. It is when the completion of the body of Christ has done its work. The Father is not waiting for the world to get so bad that he sends his son to rescue us. The Father is waiting for the people of God to do the work that God has called us to do so we can complete the work is given. And then he said, son, it's time to go get your bride. But we love to point at the world around us and say, Jesus is coming back because you're so bad. The truth is, Jesus is waiting to come back until his church gets it going. Hey, we're called to make disciples. Are we doing that? When the room is finally ready, the whole family gets together to go to the home of the bride. The town watchman will be looking in protective ways for his town. And when he sees the approach, he will allow, He will send out a cry. The groom is approaching, right? So when the groom is approaching, they're going to whisk the bride away and they're going to give her a ritual cleansing bath so that she will be prepared for the moment she and her groom will consummate their marriage. When the groom and the family enter into the town gates, a shofar, which is a ram's horn, will be sounded. It's like a trumpet. It's going to be blown to let everyone know the groom is here. It's time to gather for the wedding. The bride and groom will come together under a canopy. It's called a hufa in, in Hebrew. It'd be a canopy, and that canopy represented the presence of God over the top of them. They would stand under the canopy and the the groom would begin to share a covenant that he had prepared for his bride. He reads the covenant and asks her to accept the conditions for their marriage. And these words of the covenant express the character of the groom and what the groom values. And he asks his bride, please value the same things I value. Once the covenant has been given, the bride and groom go to consummate their marriage together. This is where the bride would show proof of her virginity, that she had saved herself for her groom. Once that proof has been given, the the groom would pay the price for the bride, and the party begins. It could be a long party, it could be a short party, but a party begins. Eventually, the bride and the groom Return back home to live in that room that he had prepared next to the father's house. And there would be one year that they would spend together in a honeymoon stage where they would get to know one another, where the groom would not be required to work in the fields and the groom would never be required to go to war because it is time for the two that have come together to get to know one another because they didn't know each other, but now they have to learn, how do we live together in love? That is the Jewishness of a a wedding. Now, let's look at Exodus chapter 19. We're going to begin reading in verse number 3. Exodus chapter 19, verse number 3. It says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people... Of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He's speaking of the plagues there, and how I bore you on eagles' wings. So uh, this would be this would be a symbolic of the way the Lord has carried them out of their bondage in Egypt, across the Red Sea, now to the Mount of Sinai is where they are. And then he says, "And brought you to myself." Now that last phrase, "brought you to myself," is very. Because listen, did Israel have a choice? No, this is this is an arrangement. That Yahweh, the God of Israel, chose a group of people. But what is very important to notice is that he did not say, I brought you to a place. He said, I brought you to myself. This is all about a relationship. This isn't about a promised land. The promised land is important, but the promised land is only important because it's the place where the relationship will grow together. You know, we, we again, so often in, in, in evangelicalism, we've made salvation about heaven, But listen, listen, we don't get saved to go to heaven someday, because salvation is not about living in a place that's called heaven. Salvation is about living with a person, and his name is Jesus. It's about relationship. It's not about a location. Modern Christianity has dumbed down the gospel. And I want you to hear me clearly, because I don't want you to think I'm being sacrilegious here, but... Modern Christianity has dumbed down the gospel to Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven one day. That's not the gospel. That's not the full gospel. That might be a part of the gospel. The gospel doesn't start with Jesus' death. It starts with Jesus' birth. He shows up. That's the good news. The king has come. And he's come to deliver you. That's really good news. That's the gospel. The king is here, and we have such a good king that he is one who will lay his life down for us as a substitute for our sin, and because that king is God, he will give life back to himself to defeat death and offer that life to anyone who believes in what he has done for them and wants to not go to heaven one day but wants to live in a relationship with him. See, the pearly gates and the golden streets and the mansion just over a hilltop. Can I tell you, that's not what heaven's all about. The pearly gates are important because they open to where the king sits. The golden streets are important because they lead to the throne. And you don't get a mansion. Just honest, that, that song is just not quite biblical. You don't get a mansion over a hilltop. You get a room with your With with the groom, you get a room with the groom. I think that's just absolutely amazing. We we focus so much on heaven, (laughs) like a place that is so rich that precious gemstones are used as decorative decorative pieces, and pure gold is used to to pave the streets. You know why we call it heaven? Not because of any of that, because that's where Jesus is. And here's can I just tell you? If you had all the wealth in the world and Jesus wasn't there, that ain't heaven. If you are in a place of eternal fire and that's where you find Jesus, that's heaven. Anywhere Jesus is, is where we want to be. And regardless of how rich or wealthy it is, anywhere Jesus is not is hell. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Oh, can I make the statement before I go on? Just just, just, just to remind us. Heaven is not about what you and I get to experience. It's not about the the cool things that we have in heaven. The cool things are all representations of the amazing king. Heaven's not about what we experience. Heaven is about who we experience. We're going to heaven to be with our king. Verse number 5. Of Exodus 19 It says now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples For all the earth is mine verse 6 And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel So God tells Moses go and tell the people this and here's what's very important to understand I know that there's conditions right here, right? It says, if you will obey. But here's what we have to understand. Listen, he's not saying, if you will obey me, I will save you from Egypt. He's already done that. This isn't like, I have to do these good things for God to work salvation in me. No, no, no. No, no, no. God doesn't respond to salvation by our good works. The people have already been saved. Now he's saying, if you will follow me because I have shown you how much I love you, if you will follow me now, there are blessings that are going to await you that you could not even begin to imagine. See, if we were to track Israel's history, which I know some of you may not have any clue what I'm talking about, Israel's history, what do you mean? If you were to go all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter number 12, a man named Abraham, God says, follow me. This is like the proposal. Will you follow me? And he does. In Genesis 15, Abraham and God make this blood covenant together. Like, okay, we're going to do this. And then what happens? For over 400 years, God's gone. The groom is gone. Where is he? His people are suffering in Egypt. They're they're slaves. They're they're in bondage. Where is this God that made a covenant with Abraham? And all of a sudden, Moses is walking in Exodus chapter 3. He's walking through the wilderness in a burning bush. He sees, and it's the presence of Yahweh. And now all of a sudden, he says, I am here. Yahweh is here. I've come to gather my bride, my people, and take them to myself. This is just amazing. He's getting ready for the wedding. Because in verse 6 or 5, when he says treasured possession, see it behind me? The word treasured possession are the exact words a Jewish groom would use for his Jewish bride on the day of their wedding. My treasured possession. Let's keep reading verse number 7. It says, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord, or that would be Yahweh, had commanded him. And and all the people answered together. So this is what he said. Hey, will you? And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, to Yahweh. That means the bride just said, we will So cool, isn't this? Isn't this so cool? Verse 9. And the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and Consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You see that? You see that? The groom's coming. It's time for the bride to be washed in preparation for the groom to be here. Now, There's a bit of misunderstanding that will happen when we read passages like this because what we will think is, well, that means that when God wants to come into my life, I've got to clean myself up so he'll come to me. And there was a reality of that in the Old Testament. You could not go into the temple unclean. You could die. You needed to be clean in the presence of Yahweh. But his son flipped the script. You know, when Jesus walked on this earth, do you know who he spent much time with? He went to sinners. Isn't that so good? Aren't you glad that you don't have a God that says, whenever you clean yourself up, you can come to me? Oh, because of what Jesus did. Our good God comes to us and says, if you'll let me, I'll clean you up. <laughs> yes. I don't have to worry about cleaning myself up. I need to be in the presence of my God, and he will clean me up. You know, Jesus doesn't wait for us to get cleaned up before, we, before he comes to us. No, he doesn't wait for that. It is in coming to Jesus that we find ourselves clean. It means Jesus doesn't save us because we're good, he saves us to make us good. What a God. Like that, you can't just sit there and stare at me like, whatever, I'm ready for this to end. You have to smile. That's how good your God is. He doesn't save you because you deserve it or are worthy. He makes you worthy. Amen. There, there we go. Yes. Man, amen. Let's keep reading because it just gets better and better. Verse 16. I'm going to skip a couple verses and go to verse 16. Remember he said, go ahead and get ready on the third day I'm coming. Now it's the third day. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. The groom is here so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Yahweh, because Yahweh the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So so picture it: the presence of God hovered over them in smoke as the people gathered close. They were under the hoopah. now. The presence of God was there. And what happens under the hoopah? The covenant is made. So what happens while the people are there gathered close to the mountain? It's the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, most of us think the Ten Commandments are these things we have to do. Oh, there's so much more than that. It's the covenant that your God wants to live in partnership together with you. What he's telling you in the Ten Commandments is this is my character. These are my values. Will you live making these values yours. See, the Ten Commandments are more than rules to live by. They are marriage vows that define the character and values of Yahweh and what he wants to be important to his bride. Now, we're not spending our time going through the rest of Exodus. We're going to eventually get to Deuteronomy. We're going to take a few few weeks, and we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments, just just, just a little bit to understand them a bit more. But if you know the story throughout the rest of Exodus, do you know what happens? Not, Not too long after these Ten Commandments are given, what do the people do? How oh, they build a golden calf and they begin to worship and dance around it. And when Moses sees this, oh, he throws the covenant that hadn't been brought back down off. Him. He throws it down in anger. And why was Moses angry? Because the bride on her honeymoon was being unfaithful to her groom. They just got married and already the unfaithfulness has begun. That's why he gets so upset. In fact, if you read what happens, it's in Exodus 32. Moses takes that golden calf and he grinds it into powder and he throws it in water and he says, drink. And the people have to drink it. And many of them die, which makes no sense. Why would Moses do that? Until we read in the book of Numbers that when a Jewish husband believes his wife has been unfaithful, he brings his wife and a grain offering to the priest, and the priest burns the grain offering, sprinkles the ashes in water, and makes the bride drink it. And if she has been unfaithful, her bowels will enlarge as a curse. If she's been faithful and innocent, nothing happens. You see, that golden calf being thrown into powder and drinking it was the bride saying, have you been unfaithful to your groom? Yeah, but you see, this has got to immediately, immediately we have to make these connections to Jesus who was handed his own cup. A cup that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass From me. Well, wait, 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 wait. What's the cup? Well, the cup is the wrath of God against sin, right? Why was Jesus afraid to drink that? He was innocent. He could have and should have drank the cup of God's wrath against sin and being completely sinless, being completely pure, being completely innocent, he could have drank God's wrath against sin and nothing happened to him. But Jesus didn't drink the cup of God's wrath against sin for himself. He drank it for his bride and he knew his bride was guilty. He said, I'll take the guilt of my bride so that she could know the blessings. That I deserve. He took the curse of the cup. So his bride would not have to suffer. For her own sins. But this is just a glimpse. Of what your Jesus has done for you. Because you remember. We said the bride and the groom come together. To consummate the marriage. And if she cannot prove that she is a virgin. If proof is given. That she has not been faithful to her groom. Her groom walks away from her. Not to pay the price. And says, I will not enter a covenant with someone who has already been unfaithful. You know what Jesus did, though? He knew his bride was unfaithful, and he still paid the price to have her. And that price was all that he was. What a, what a good, good king you have. Moses saw the actions of the people, throws the tablets down, and they break. But he wasn't even the groom. He was a part of the people. What would the groom do? What does Yahweh do? Well, what does Yahweh do? He sees the people being unfaithful. Moses throws the tablets down. What does Yahweh do? He says, Moses, come back up the mountain. I'll rewrite the covenant. They've already been unfaithful, but I'll rewrite the covenant with you. Man, man. Does this not just make your heart be like, wow, what a, what a God that we have. And it doesn't mean that God ignores the unfaithfulness of his people. He doesn't ignore the fact that you and I have lived this week without him first on our heart. He doesn't ignore that. He doesn't just say, well, it doesn't matter. It matters a lot, but you know who it matters to? To Jesus, who suffered for our sin. He suffered for our unfaithfulness because it was while he was hanging on the cross, he speaks the words, why have you forsaken me? Oh, he should have forsaken the people. He should have forsaken the unfaithful ones. But here his very son, sinless, spotless, hangs on a cross and the father turns from his pure son he forsakes his son yes he does that so that he can accept you and me as the unfaithful ones jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted what a what a god what a king that we have say so so what I do with this amen i love the fact that what paul says in the, Old, in the New Testament, Paul writes this. He's like, I'm the chiefest of sinners, right? Oh, wretched man that I am, right? And then he says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Are you a sinner or a saint, Paul? Yes. Yeah, yeah. but are you a sinner? I am the chiefest of sinners. But are you a saint? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hey, man, wow, that is such good news. So what do we do with it? Ah, We celebrate the redemption offered by the work of our groom. We celebrate it. How do we do that? Well, we allow our lives to be a light for Jesus through our worship. And that doesn't mean what we do in here. When you go to work tomorrow... You're worshiping your king in the way that you go to work tomorrow. You're worshiping your king in the words that you use, in the works that you do. Listen, if you haven't figured it out by now in three weeks, I love worship. I love to sing. I love to raise my hands. I'll say amen. I'm going to get excited. I celebrate what my king has done for me. Now, you may not in the same way. Like, Chelsea, can I tell you? Can I tell them what you said on Tuesday about? Yeah, yeah. So Chelsea said on Tuesday, she was standing over here. She's like, last week, I wanted to get down on my knees and raise my hands as we sang. And I'm like, then do it. But what would the people think? No, no, no. What would my king want? Right? So if you say, like, man, Brian, you're just a little bit weird. Like, well, there's truth to that. My daughter can testify if she needs to. I am a little bit weird, but I love Jesus. I mean, like, if I went to a football game, I'd be screaming, Why can't I do that for my king? Yeah. See, if you don't celebrate your love, it's going to grow stale. That's what happens in marriages. You don't celebrate your relationship anymore. You start looking outside of that covenant relationship that has been made. For those of you that enjoy marriage, and go, go back. Well, Devin, you, you performed the wedding yesterday for, uh, for Noah and Alicia, right? Every time I've done a wedding, you know what it's done is it's, 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 it's brought back all the words that I promised to my wife 28 years ago. Like, this is what I, am I living that out? Hey, hey, husbands and wives, those kids are important. They are. But they're not most important. They'll be gone one day. We're experiencing that now. Our kids are all out of the house. It's just the two of us. You know what? I, I don't really want to tell my kids this but it's been kind of cool. <laughs> I, it's, it's, there's been times where it's just fun that it's just been us. I miss my children. I love my children. I'm so glad that Trinity came this week. I'm thrilled with that. But like, just the two of us, it's okay. People were like, oh, that empty nest thing, you're going to, man, like, it hasn't hit us quite yet. Too bad. Oh, my wife would be like, yeah, it is, so, yeah. I guess I'm the one enjoying the spouse and my, my wife is not enjoying her spouse quite. Uh, quite yeah, 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 yeah. Celebrate me, baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, what can be easy to do is start in a marriage to say, well, look at all I've done for them. What have they done for me? But listen, you didn't get married to ask that question. You didn't get married to say, what are they going to do for me? You got married to say, what can I do for them? Got to keep living that way. Secondly, experience the satisfaction found in the presence of our groom. Right, so we've got to stop thinking that heaven is all we're waiting for. Jesus can walk with you today. Hey, heaven is going to be amazing when we finally see him face to face, oh, oh. But we don't have to ignore him today, right? He wants to enjoy you today. He wants you to enjoy him today. And we do that not by saying, look at all I'm doing for him, but look at who I am doing this for. This church is pretty cool. This place is a buzz. Like, early on Sunday mornings. And if you're looking for some way to serve, man, let me know. We'll, we'll, we'll get you involved. But, but it is so cool to walk in here, see people getting ready and doing these. But I'll tell you this, sometimes we go through these seasons of saying, I am so tired of serving people. No, listen, wait. You're not serving people. You're serving Jesus. By serving his people. And sometimes we have to be reminded of that. And allow our focus to be on who we're serving, not just what we're doing. We want Jesus to become our satisfaction because if, if I can have Jesus plus something else to make me finally happy, well, you're always going to be disappointed by whatever the plus is. But the deeper you go in Jesus, the greater the satisfaction will become. Last, live with a devotion to the values of your groom, Right? Celebrate the redemption offered by the work of your groom. Experience the satisfaction found in the presence of your groom and live with a devotion to the values of your groom. So love the people whom Jesus loves. Kara, you said it so beautifully in your prayer. Like, May we have a heart for the things that Jesus has a heart for. We have hearts for things, right? We do. We want stuff. Is that what Jesus has a heart for? Jesus loves widows. We should love widows. Jesus loves the fatherless. We should love the fatherless. Jesus loves foreigners and outsiders. We should love people outside of the family of God. And Jesus loves sinners. And I don't know about you, but I have a really hard time loving sinners. Sometimes it's really hard. I remember the day that it, it hit me. We visited. We would visit Chicago kind of on a regular basis when we lived closer to it, and you, know, you walk past homeless people wanting your money. Right? What's the first thing you think of? What are they going to do with it? Am I going to give you my money? You're going to waste it. You're going to go buy alcohol. You're going to go use it to, to continue in the lifestyle that you're already living. And it was so easy for me to look at them and say, Psh, and just keep walking until, until the day it hit me. A poor, homeless man with nothing to offer me is the very physical representation of who I was ...to Jesus. I was poor. I had nothing to offer. I was homeless. I had no home. I had nothing to give him. And he didn't look at me and say, Well, if I give my grace to you, you're going to waste it. He actually knew that when he gave his grace to me, I would waste it. He actually knew that when he showered me with gifts... I would take those gifts and I would use them to continue in a lifestyle that did not glorify him, that glorified me. He knew that when he poured out mercy and forgiveness and kindness and compassion and generosity and love, he knew when he poured all of that out on me, I would take it and I would run with it and I would have nothing to do with living for the king. Nothing to do with it. And yet he still did it. I came to realize when I look at a poor, homeless man that has nothing to offer me and I ask the question, what is he going to do with what I give him? I'm asking the wrong question. The question is, do you have a heart like Jesus? I'm not for helping people stay in their struggle. you know, and I don't want to enable people. I think we use that as an excuse far too often to say I'm not going to because what we really do is we lack the heart of generosity that Jesus desires. So what if this man takes $5 and does something sinful with it? What did you do with the grace he showered on you? It's not about what he's going to do. It's about do I have a heart like my king? Because he's the one who was rich and became poor for me. So that I through his poverty might become rich? Right? He's the one who says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Like, right? The great exchanges, that's what our king wants. So have you committed to your groom? If you have, are you ready to live according to the values that he has? Because Jesus isn't just after your actions, he's after your affection. And he doesn't give you commandments as rules to live by, but they're covenant vows between two lovers. And that's what he wants from you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you